Welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. Praise the Lord. That was an incredible time together. How y'all doing today? That's excellent. Y'all sound like it. Well, wow, today is the conclusion of our True Story series. It has been quite a a journey going through very tough questions in the faith. And uh, today we're going to talk about something that really came front and center to me my first year in ministry. Uh, I was actually with our lead pastor, James, uh, at Howard University. You know. <laughs> and while we were there, uh, we met this guy named Rachman. Now, uh, Rachman, he came to our Bible study. Uh, he got there early, and I remember the eager look on his face as we were meeting at Drew Hall, the freshman dorm for the guys on campus. And so I just approached myself, and I introduced myself to him, and Rachman said, hey, I'm here because my dad is Muslim, my mom is a Christian, my grandmom is a Jehovah's Witness. We all live in the same house, and they're all trying to convert me at the same time. And I just need to know what the truth is. And I sat there, and I was like, wow. And I, I, immediately I thought about what like dinner at home must be like. I mean, you're getting into it as soon as you start to do the prayer over the blessing over the food. Um, but after that, uh, it, it really began this, this, this really, you know, just walking through this journey with him. Uh, Rachman, a few weeks later, ended up committing his life to Christ. Um, but there's this huge question that our culture faces and that we face today. And the question is, is Jesus the only way to God? That was what Rachman's question. That's what a lot of people are asking now. And the interesting thing about it is even in the church, this is not a non-controversial topic. Uh, Recently, uh, Pew Forum did a uh, study, if I can get it up on the screen. Yes, it's on. Bex, you might need to control this for me. Um, It's not seeming to respond. But in any case, Pew Forum, they did a a study, and this is what it says. 65% of American Christians agree with the statement, many religions can lead to salvation. This is American Christians. But if you were to expand it beyond that to uh, just the culture in general, and especially the uh, group known as the millennials, right? The 18 years old until 35, roughly. In a survey, 74% of millennials agree with the statement, whatever is right for your life or works for you is the only truth you can know. In other words, they say, look, whatever is right for you, you know, you've heard this all the time. You know, like if that works for you, then you do you, right? You do what works for you, I do what works for me. But they go further and say, that's the only truth that is even knowable is what works for you in your life. And in fact, many would even state and feel offense 
to the idea that you would bring to them an idea that somehow they need to change what they believe in order to conform with truth or reality. That is an offensive idea in our culture today. And so today we're going to ask that question about Jesus and is he the only way to God by looking at it from three different standpoints um, that kind of build onto this. And it's maybe the battery's out. Just, you know, um, control it yourself, Bex. Just, I'll just let you know when to go from slide to slide. And so we're going to ask these three questions. The first question, is truth relative? The second question, do all religions teach the same thing? And then the third question, who is Jesus? So that's what we're going to get into today. And um, let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for this day. We thank you for the fact that you reveal truth to us. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to uh, come and learn and sit at your feet. We pray that, Holy Spirit, you would teach us and guide us. In Christ's name, amen. So the first question, is truth relative? Now, what do we mean by that? Well, when people say it's truth relative, what they're saying is as opposed to it being absolute, right? So we've heard this saying before, well, you know, truth is really a matter of perspective. Uh, you know, so it's not that this particular belief or faith system is right or wrong. It's just, you know, we can't even know that. It's, it, matter of fact, it's just a matter of relativism. That's the perspective. And it's understandable why in a pluralistic society, in a city even such as New York, where you have almost every tribe, tongue, and nation in the same city, oftentimes living in the same block, why people would want this to be true. Because it seems like to, to believe something else, that there is absolute truth that's knowable out there, would kind of cause beef, would kind of cause a little bit of uh, lack of harmony with us and our neighbors. And so it seems to be a convenient reality, um, but it's one that oftentimes critics and skeptics will use to level against people of faith and especially Christians and call us narrow-minded, arrogant, and uh, hopelessly um, just ethnic and ethnocentric. And so is that true? But the problem with all of those accusations is it fails to recognize a, um, a kind of a truth that's hidden within the statement. Uh, Dr. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, put it this way. Skeptics believe that any exclusive claims to a superior knowledge of spiritual reality cannot be true. But this objection is itself a religious belief. The, the idea that, that somehow that there can't be an exclusive claim to truth, that there can't be, that it, it is built on this idea that is unprovable. There, there's, it's just a faith belief. It's a faith conjecture. And it's one that doesn't even correspond to reality. Because, you know, but, you know, let's just say, for example, it does, right? So, okay, truth is relative. So then, you know, if that's true, then it doesn't really matter what we say about, uh, let's go into the area of math. Two plus two equals six. Now, 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 I know you might have came up with a different answer for you, but what works for you is one thing, and that's relative to you. What works for me is another. So, 
You can go to the next slide. But so the idea is two plus two equals six, right? Now, if there is no absolute truth, then is that statement wrong? Yet you go up in your math class <laughs> and there are wrong answers. In fact, there are many wrong answers. Matter of fact, not only is, two plus, is that wrong, two plus two does not equal six, but it doesn't equal five, it doesn't equal eight, seven. Not, there, there are a multitude, there's an infinite number of wrong answers to the question, what does two plus two equal? There's only one right answer to the question. So you can go to the next one. So no matter how culturally enlightened it sounds, it is a self-contradiction to say that truth is relative. Dr. Ravi Zachariah puts it this way. Truth is by definition exclusive. See, two plus two equals four, period. There's no conversation to be had with that. It is true, and guess what? It is true in India. It is true in Alaska. It is true in Africa. It is true in Indonesia. It is true in Asia. It's true in Europe. It is true all over the globe. Matter of fact, if you take a spaceship and you go to the moon, guess what? Two plus two still equals four. And that's all it equals. It's exclusive. And truth claims are exclusive. Well, think about this statement. Think about this for a second. Think about the statement, there is no absolute truth. Just give you a second to pause. Raise your hand if you've heard this statement before. Okay, most of us in the room. There is no absolute truth. The next time you hear someone say, there is no absolute truth, I just want you to ask them one question. Are you absolutely sure? Are you absolutely sure? It's a self-contradictory statement because it, it, it can't be simultaneously true that truth is relative all over the world, all over the universe, but yet, but you just told me it was relative. And so, is truth relative? No. Truth is absolute and it is exclusive. That's just a reality. Well, the second question that we wanted to tackle today is, do all religions basically teach the same thing? And, you know, Rich has shared this in his message about uh, the scriptures, and, 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 and you could definitely check that out. But there's this imagery and this, pos- this idea out there that, well, you know, it's, it's really just that all of these different faiths and different worldviews and perspectives they are, you know, essentially, if you go underneath the, the, like, the, you know, kind of the wording of the rules, they are essentially teaching the same thing. They're essentially one and the same. In order to, to tackle this, though, we have to kind of answer and draw out the question, well, what is a religion in the, the first place? What is religion? Well, again, going back to uh, Dr. Keller and the reason for God, this is how he defined it. I found it to be a very helpful definition. Religion is a set of beliefs that explain what life is all about, who we are, and the most important things that human beings should spend their time doing. Set of beliefs that explain what life is all about, who we are, and the most important things that human beings should spend their time doing. I like that definition, not only for what it says, but what it doesn't say. And we'll get into that in a second. 
Uh, according to some scholars, there are over 6,000 different religions in the world. And some people would say, well, you know, you can't really know yours is true unless you've studied all of those 6,000. But somehow when we get to the math problem, I don't have to study all of the different versions of two plus two to know that it equals four. All we do is study the truth and then let the other ones uh, kind of fall as they are. But all of these 6,000 belief systems and religions can really be broken down into three major worldviews. And that's what we're going to tackle uh, today with this second point. And here are the three worldviews. The first is that only the universe exists. Only the material, natural world, right? Gases, solids, liquids, atoms, that's it. That's called naturalism. The second worldview is that only God exists. Only supreme consciousness, supreme being, and everything else is an illusion. And there's a, a, a group that falls under that that's called pantheism. Pantheism is literally, if you break down that word, pan as in all theism, like God. So it's like all is God and God is all. If you ever got some of that like peppermint soap that we used to use in the hood and it's like all is one and one is all and it has all this, like that's a pantheistic perspective. It's also good soap. <laughs> and then the third one is both God and the universe exist. And this is called theism. Now, I need you guys to stay with me on this next part. It's going to get a little technical. There's a little bit of philosophy involved. But if you stay with me, it'll be worth it. Y'all with me? Yeah. All right. Come on. Stay with me. So here's the deal. Every religion answers four major questions. And I'm indebted to Dr. Zacharias again for kind of breaking this down for us. But here are the four questions. It's a question of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. The question of origin, how did we get here? The question of meaning, what is the purpose of life? Morality, how do I define right and wrong? And destiny, what happens when we die? Essentially, they all can be broken down into this. Now, we can evaluate these statements because to be true, beliefs must have three characteristics. They must be logically consistent. Right? Two plus two equals four. If you tell me that it equals five, then we're already off to a bad start. It has to be logically consistent. It has to be empirically adequate, self-evident, like reality and life ought to correspond to the truth that you're saying. That'll become a little bit easier as we use this as a criteria in a few moments. And lastly, experientially relevant. What is this truth statement say about you in your life. Now, before we ex expand and kind of get into these various worldviews, I do want to set a little bit of a context because like I said, part of the reason why this idea that truth is relative and that all beliefs essentially teach the same thing exists is from a good motive, which is a desire that, you know, like Rodney King said, like, hey, can't we all just get along? And unfortunately, throughout history, there have been major beef and issues and violence that have been caused because people, you know, have chosen to use these differences of belief as, as a reason and oftentimes as a pretext to do some very ugly and destructive things. And that's everybody who falls under those categories. And so I get it. But here's the point. We can disagree without being disagreeable. That's possible. 
And in our other modes of, of life, whether they be um, in political ideologies or, or, or intellectual ideologies or shoot, even when it comes down to who's going to win the NBA finals this year, we can disagree without being disagreeable. <laughs> but here's, here's the scriptural idea behind it. This is what Peter said in 2 Peter 3.15. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter says three things here that is very important. He says, first of all, set, he's talking to Christians here, set your hearts and honor Christ the Lord in your hearts as Lord, as holy. Like that's like keep and maintain the distinctiveness. Don't shrink back from it. Don't water it down. Don't hide it. But then he also goes on and says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks. So it's not enough to just say, well, you know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That, that might work for you, but in the complex society that we live in, people have questions. And like Radio Shack, well, like their motto says, although they didn't live up to it, we've got answers, or at least we should. So he said, be prepared. But then thirdly, he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so it's possible to hold all of these things in true, where we, in, in, in tandem, where we can simultaneously set apart Christ as Lord, simultaneously be prepared to give an answer, and doing it all with gentleness and respect. All right, so now that those ground rules are set, let's jump into the first one, naturalism. And this is, naturalism is an atheistic perspective, right? It's like I said, that only the material world exists. And so this is how naturalism answers those four fundamental questions. The question of origin, it says we are the result of a cosmic accident. There could have been no purpose behind anything in how we got here because there is nothing beyond the physical world to have a conscious purpose. So we're not, there is no God in naturalism. There is no soul in naturalism. There, there's just the physical world. And as a result of that, meaning boils down to the way it works in people's kind of daily lives is whatever you want life to mean, it can mean that to you because there is no person that has given you meaning. Now, really, when you go down deep, they, they're kind of cheating here, right? Because if we are simply the biological manifestations of electrical synapses and chemical reactions going on, then really there is no such thing as meaning. And this is why in many places of the world that have adopted this, especially in Europe and North America, nihilism has set in or this existential crisis and dilemma of the fact all of that means is life has no meaning. And so because life has no meaning, people have a crisis and they don't know what to do about that. Because essentially naturalism leads you down a course where there is no meaning, if you take it to its logical extent. But like I said, most people don't, so they kind of cheat and give themselves a meaning. So third... Morality. Well, as you probably have deduced, there can really be no real good or evil because in order for there to be real good or evil, there had to be someone who established that real good or evil. But again, oftentimes people kind of fudge on this one too. They don't kind of fudge, they do completely. 
But morality seems the, 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 the thrust of it is knowledge, right? Like, so I just, we just need to know more and we just need to live according to the rules of science. And so as a result of that, wherever our knowledge and our scientific discoveries can take us, that's where we ought to go. And the more that we can rid ourselves of silly superstitions and beliefs, then the better. This is the ideology of it. And then lastly, destiny. When we die according to naturalism, we simply cease to exist. That's all. Perhaps one of the most famous and popular naturalist atheists right now is a gentleman named Richard Dawkins out of the UK. He wrote the book, The God Delusion, and he's one of a group called the New Atheists. And the New Atheists are aggressive and uh, proactive in their attempts to evangelize the whole world with the news that there is no God. And they're very aggressive. And this is what Richard Dawkins says. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is. At bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. This is Richard Dawkins' worldview. This is what he says we should all adopt as our own. If you, you can go to the next. So, so essentially when we get there, here's the important thing about this. We all have religious beliefs even if they appear irreligious. What, what proof does Richard Dawkins offer that there is no purpose? What proof does he offer that there is no good and evil? What proof does he offer that there is no God? I mean, how can you be infinitely sure that there's no such thing as an infinite being? Do you, but you don't have all the answers. But he's building it on a faith, a belief system that he has chosen to put his faith in that, to answer those questions. So, so don't fall into this trap or this trick of thinking that somehow there's a, a, a dichotomy between faith and reason. Because when it comes to these ultimate questions of origin, of meaning, and morality, science can't even take you there. That's not even what it's designed to do. So there is no beef. There is no conflict. It is the interpretation of the scientific facts that is at issue. But what I am subscribing to you is that atheism is in itself a belief system. It's a religion. And so religion doesn't merely have to be uh, ascribing to any supernatural being. Now, interestingly enough, ultimately atheism in the supernatural being is the self, right? Because whenever you can say that there is no uh, you know, ultimate infinite being, then you have now graduated yourself as having infinite knowledge. But oftentimes, the other issue is that the atheists and naturalists will point as part of their argument against theism to the, to the awful history that have, has occurred under people who believe, right? The, the Crusades come up, the, the Spanish Inquisition comes up, slavery comes up, all of these different things to say, look at what the evils that religion have done. Religion has been the most destructive thing that has happened to humanity. That's what they'll say. But uh, Dinesh D'Souza actually disagrees with that statement, and I would say history does. This is what D'Souza says. And who can deny that Stalin and Mao, 
not to mention Pol Pot and a host of others, all committed atrocities in the name of a communist ideology that was explicitly atheistic. Who can dispute that they did their bloody deeds by claiming to be establishing a new man in a religious free utopia? See, don't get it twisted. What he's saying here is we're not just kind of going tit for tat and go, hey, some atheists happen to do bad things. No, what he's saying is their naturalist perspective, their ideology drove them to kill the millions and millions of people that you see Pol Pot in Cambodia with Khmer Rouge, Mao, Mao Zedong with communist China, Stalin in Russia, and the list goes on. The 20th century was the bloodiest century in humanity's existence between World War I, World War II, various different wars, and the majority of that violence came from people who ascribed to no religious faith. No supernatural religious faith, they had one, but it was an atheistic perspective. So this idea that somehow we can escape and just kind of, we just leave faith alone, that somehow we'll be, build a better utopia, well, the last century doesn't prove that. You don't gotta go 400, 500 years ago. To this day, North Korea is the most violent, repressed nation in the world. And it's an atheistic one in which Christians are persecuted on a daily basis. So their faith is inescapable. But is there another plane of existence? You know, I, um, it was funny when I was teaching this kind of worldview stuff and meaning and origin, I, I, it ended up taking me to Romania a few years ago, yeah. And I was teaching a, a group of uh, medical students, Romanians in the house, big ups. <laughs> and, and so I came back and I had to take four flights to get back from where I was in Yash, Romania, back all the way to uh, Indianapolis where I was living at the time. And on the fourth leg of the journey, right? So I've been on the plane now for like 12 hours. You know, I sit next to this uh, woman and we start talking. And it turns out that uh, she's a professor. Matter of fact, not only is she a professor, she's the Dean of Anthropology at Purdue University. And so anthropology is a field, as you know, that really studies people's belief systems all over the world. Typically, it is very critical um, in rejecting of this idea of exclusive truth and religion, and especially Christianity. And so, of course, I said, okay, well, this is time to share what I've learned and with someone who's an expert. So, I, you know, I told her, yeah, I just came back from Romania. She said, well, I said, well, I was just teaching these students, uh, these medical students, these, you know, essentially about worldview questions. And I said, and, and essentially, this is what I taught them, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because you know, you're a dean of anthropology, right, at a major university. I said, essentially, what, what I learned and gathered is that every worldview is teaching four essential things, or has to deal with four issues, the issue of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. I said, is that right? She said, yeah, no, that's, that sounds about right. So then, of course, I asked, well, what, what's your worldview? And she said, well, you know, I, of course, as a, as a scientist and academic, I'm you know, I'm, I'm an atheist, uh, I don't believe that there's a God, I think we just kind of got here through, you know, random natural selection and that was it. And, uh, you know, yeah, so that's kind of how I do my thing. I've studied and I've seen people in various different parts of the world and, and meaningful people, but I, we all just kind of, you know, don't, you know, people don't, I don't believe to, I don't ascribe to anything. I said, so what do you think happens when you die? The question of destiny. She said, well, I think we just cease to exist, you know, just, and then she paused and kind of shook her head and said, but you know, 
uh, last year I lost my husband. Uh, we, we were married for 34 years, and uh, I, I can't help but think that he's still around, like that he's just not gone. And, and I don't know if, what that means or what that looks like, but, um, but I kind of still believe that, though. And so it's interesting that even with this hardened person, that this idea of, uh, of destiny, is we're, we're haunted by it because it doesn't conform to our sense of reality, even in this conversation with her. Interestingly enough, uh, she was very um, congratulatory and enthusiastic when I told her I was a believer and that this was what I was sharing from a Christian standpoint. And I think it really just taught me that people are less offended by what we believe and, and more by how we present and communicate to them. Yeah. That's been my experience. So in any case, that's naturalism. Let's go to the second one, uh, which is only God exists in pantheism. Now, I, had, I put God in quotes because to try to explain the breadth and the depth of, of, of pantheistic thought is really complicated and difficult. Uh, and so I'm kind of fudging here for the sake I couldn't put God slash supreme being slash a sense of ultimate consciousness slash. It just didn't, the font didn't work for all of that. So I'm just kind of using, just get with me for God. But under this umbrella, there's a, a, a wide array of philosophies and perspectives. But here's the essential for how these questions are answered. In the issue of origin, in pantheistic thought, there's really, they, they kind of emphasize and avoid this aspect of a beginning and actually say that it's really about a cyclical state of births and deaths and rebirths and deaths that happen over and over and over again through time. And that the meaning, the purpose of life is to be one with the universe. That essentially because in pantheism there is no real such thing as the material world separate from a spiritual world, the whole goal is to rid yourself of the illusion of the material world and only experience this consciousness, this, this ultimate consciousness. And so morality is essentially not a real, like as we would define as like, you know, different lying, stealing, like that's not really the thing. It's really about a denial of desire. Because the de desire is the main issue in most of the pantheistic thought. And so the destiny part is well, we're reincarnated according to how well we did in this life as it relates to did I deny self or did I not deny self? And I can go kind of forward and kind of upwardly evolve in that process or go backwards so I can like, if, you know, if I was really a bad person and just very, just very in myself, then I could be, be come back as a bug or come back as a, a cat. Or, but if I did better, then I can actually, you know, improve. And especially in Hinduism, this is where the caste system developed. And all of this is built around this idea of karma. And see, so you can see where the, a lot of pantheistic and uh, some would say new age thought has permeated into our culture because now the words karma and reincarnation, they're just kind of natural expressions to us, but they are built and wedded into a, a worldview that looks as this is not as just you do something like, it's not just you reap what you sow. You know, like that's, that, it's not an equation that goes quickly to that. It is actually a deeper principle that is the fundamental principle in Hinduism. Now, the interesting thing here is, and again, this is where Hinduism and Buddhism kind of depart, and these are the major uh, variations and the major forms of pantheism, is that actually Gautama Buddha was a Hindu 
He was born and raised in a Hindu family. And then as he grew up, he rejected Hinduism, especially because of the caste system in India, in case you don't know, that the the natural expression of this karmic reincarnation uh, motif and ideology expresses itself that people, there are people on the lowest, what they call the, um, the untouchables, all the way up to the highest status in society. And these are separated by classes. So like the soldiers are on one level, the the scholars and intellectuals are at the top. And these castes are organized by different ethnic groups. And so the untouchables at the bottom of the class are treated, because karma, something according to the ideology, they must have done wrong in their previous life to put them in this position of being in in the underclass, being untouchable. So as a result of that, we have no moral reason to treat them well or to help them. This was why what Mother Teresa did was so groundbreaking when she was in Calcutta, because all the rest of the people just left the untouchables alone to fester in their diseases and die. But she went because of her faith in Christ and started healing and spending time with them and helping them. So Buddha rejects this part, but it embraces much else of the kind of pantheistic thought. And so there's a sense of a destiny in, in Hinduism complete union with the sense of Brahman, this ultimate consciousness is the goal. In Buddhism, it's a sense of complete negation, meaning uh, emptying myself of any self-consciousness at all. And then when I do that, I experience nirvana. And that is what destiny looks like. But until that happens, we continue to go through life reincarnated again and again. Well, that's the second one. And in that, there's several issues as we evaluate according to the criteria that we talked about in terms of logically consistent, empirically evident, and experientially valid. And and one of the big issues is even with creation itself. Like scientifically and just, you know, kind of logically you go, well, there had to be a beginning because if I'm only reincarnated for my wrongs, well, eventually I had to have a first birth in which I did no wrong, right? Like there was a starting point. Doesn't really answer that question. And then ultimately, how do I know how, how I'm doing in the process? And there's just infinite ways in which, you know, I'm, I'm, I have to like try to count and do everything. So to, this is why to the point, Jainism, J-A-I-N-I-S-M, is a, a form of pantheism that you can find in India where the people actually wear a face mask over their mouths to protect them from inadvertently swallowing a gnat or a fly because they would believe it would destroy the, you know, a creation and set them back in their karmic pursuits. And so, this issue of wrongs and and how do I upwardly kind of move up the scale or not. And then then finally, this aspect of no difference between uh, the material world and the spiritual one. But we'll go on to the next, to the third one, which is the theistic perspective, that God and nature exists. In the theistic perspective, our origin, God created the world. That there is a God, there is a supernatural being, so this rejects naturalism, which says that we just kind of happened by a cosmic accident, which again is not even logically consistent because one of the laws of science is that matter cannot be created or destroyed. So right from there, you kind of got yourself stuck because how did the first matter get there? Where did the rocks come from? And do you realize that some of these things, I mean, brilliant men, Stephen Hawking and Richard Dawkins and these guys, 
they have actually began to theorize that maybe aliens came down and created the first aspect of life. Because see, the idea used to be, and what many of us were taught in schools was that there was like this warm soup and then lightning came down and then the lightning kind of you know, sparked life. But then that theory has been disproven. So now they're like, okay, well, life had to get here somehow. Well, maybe some aliens dropped it off. And I'm like, well, dog, if you're gonna get to talk about aliens, then I mean, God, why, why not him? <laughs> I mean, you know, and you say that we got blind faith. Okay, all right. So in any case, God created the world. Secondly, meaning, God gives us purpose. This says, no, we're not just, just make your own purpose up. And it's, no, it's, it's not a matter of uh, just trying to, trying to continue to go up this scale of, of karmic uh, reality, but actually God gives us a purpose, that he creates us in the time and space in which we exist in this world. And he's given us gifts and abilities and talents and strengths and interests. And he's done those things to live out the calling that he has to redeem this world. Morality, God reveals commands in the theistic perspective. Oh, oh, might need to keep it moving. Uh, I'll I'll just keep going. And then uh, lastly, here we go. Destiny, we die and are evaluated in the theistic perspective. We die and are evaluated. So, Do all religions basically teach the same thing? Well, I hope that we've seen now by the four fundamental questions of origin, of meaning, of morality, of destiny. There's multiple different answers to these questions based on which perspective you have. And so as Dr. Zacharias is fond of saying, the major beliefs may be superficially similar in talking about, you know, avoiding certain things like murder and lying and things like that, but they are fundamentally different and their understandings of reality. Superficially similar, but fundamentally different. Thirdly, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And this is such a broad topic, I thought it'd be helpful to look at it from several different perspectives. One is, what did others say about him? And when I say others, I don't just mean people in the scriptures, I mean historically. So the first we can look at is this guy by the name of Josephus. Josephus was a first century Jewish historian. So this is not a Christian. And he says, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, and he goes on and on. Now, this is significant for a couple of reasons that Josephus is saying this. First of all, you see the fact that, I mean, because one, nowadays around Christmas and Easter time, you always see these specials like historical Jesus that some people actually say there isn't one. Well, here's a extra biblical source to saying, yeah, there was this guy named Jesus. He was wise. He did wonderful works. Notice, even though he is not a Christian, he is still acknowledging the miraculous works that Jesus did. 
And essentially, this was the uniform perspective and among Judaism in the first and second century, that he was a false teacher, he was a false prophet, and a sorcerer. This is the same thing we see in the scriptures, right? You, get, you do this by the power of Beelzebub, by the devil, and, and that's what... But people, his opponents didn't say he didn't do it. They just say that he came, it came from an evil source. So he says a wonderful a teacher. He drew both Jews and Gentiles, and Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned them to the cross. So right there, Josephus is saying, look, yeah, this is what happened. There was this dude named Jesus, and the religious leaders put him to the cross. But in the, so, so this is what Josephus says about him. But then if you actually look at Islam, and I just kind of condensed, there are over 90, there are 90 different verses in the Quran about Jesus. And essentially it boils down to this. Islam corroborates that Jesus was born to a virgin, was sinless, performed miracles, and was superior to all the other prophets. This is what Islam teaches. Yet Islam teaches that Jesus was no more than a prophet. In the Surah 4, it says this. So this is quoting directly from the Quran. That they, boast, they said in boast, we killed Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah, but they killed him not, nor crucified him. The Quran disagrees with the Bible, disagrees with Josephus, disagrees with Roman and Greek historians who didn't have a dog in the fight. They just report in history and saying that it actually didn't happen. So once again, two plus two either equals four or it equals six, but both can't be true. Either Jesus was crucified and as Christians taught, resurrected or he wasn't. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, again, accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now look at what Paul says there. He said, here's the key things that would I deliver. Christ died, According to the scriptures, according to the prophecies said about him, he was raised once again according. And then look at this last part. Then he appeared. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. He appeared to the 12. And then it says he appeared to more than 500. And then he challenges you and saying, oh, and by the way, most of them still alive. So you can go check them out. They right down the street. They can tell you. Think about that. How, how, not to mention the fact that he appeared to Paul, and I don't know how else do you explain how the chief persecutor of the church, I mean, Paul in the book of Acts up until chapter 9 is like modern day, first century Osama bin Laden. I mean, he is going after the church. He is persecuting them. When the first Christian dies, Stephen, he's there holding people's stuff so they don't get, you know, stolen and, 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 and smiling in approval. He cast his vote to kill them. He then on his way to Damascus to go get more, he says that Jesus appeared to him and said, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth who you persecute. And from that moment on, Paul goes from Osama bin Laden to Billy Graham and starts teaching Jesus everywhere. How else do you explain that? What other possible conclusion could you come to? So that's what others said about Jesus. But what did Jesus say about himself? 
Because this is where, um, you know, some people say, well, you know, this is other people attributed. They misunderstood, you know, what he said. He ain't never said this about himself. Check out what Jesus said. Now, before I, we go to this part, I do want you to help us understand. Historically speaking, almost everything we know about Jesus and what he said is found in the New Testament. It is, it is the quintessential source. There is no other sources that people can kind of rely on to say that this is more accurate. And Rich did a great job talking about this a few weeks ago. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That sounds pretty exclusive and narrow, doesn't it? That's what Jesus said. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Well, check this out. Just in comparison, Buddha never claimed to be God. Moses never claimed to be Jehovah. Muhammad never claimed to be Allah. Yet Jesus Christ claimed to be the living God. Buddha simply said, I am a teacher in search for the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Truth is who I am. If you move on, Confucius said, I never claimed to be holy. Jesus said, who convicts me of sin? Muhammad said, unless God throws this cloak of mercy over me, I have no hope. Jesus said, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. This is different. It's a different cat. This is not in the same category of a teacher that's finding truth. And he doesn't give us the option of just accepting him as a good teacher. The famed trilemma that, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about is he's either a liar, he's either a lunatic and just crazy, like the dude on the train that's just saying that he got it and whatever that you might run into, or he's Lord. He doesn't give you another option. Well, what was the impact of his life, right? Because some of this the proof is in the pudding. Well, Pastor John Ortberg puts it this way. And this, I want us to help us think through this because we just take it for granted so much that we live in the wake and the flow of the influence of Christ. But he says, on the day that after Jesus' death, it looked as if whatever small mark he left on the world would rapidly disappear. Instead, his impact on human history has been unparalleled. It looked like defeat at the cross. It looked like it was over. This was done. There were other people who claimed to be the Messiah in first century Jerusalem. And their movements when they were executed, that was it. It fizzled out. You can look up Judas Maccabees. You can look up all of these different other prophets. These are historical figures that claimed to be something and they said they weren't. With Jesus, the story is different. And not even just Christians say this, right? There's a, a great quote. H.G. Wells was one of the most famous atheists of his time. And this is what he says. I am a historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless Pete preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is the, easily the most dominant figure in all history. And this is from a non-believer. 
Here's the, the reality, and this is what is so frustrating and interesting about the fact when people want to simultaneously claim that there is no God and you don't need God to be good, right? You don't need God to be good. The reality is if there is no God, there is no good. The only reason, in other words, secular America, secularism is only possible because of the foundation of Christian thought and perspective. Did you realize that prior to Christians beginning to execute Jesus' command to, to not force little kids away, but actually pay attention to them? And he said, look, if you want to enter into the kingdom, enter like a child. There was no such thing as schools. Christians began to educate children in what we now call as schools. Prior to Jesus saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength, there was no universities. Christians created universities so they could study and understand the God of the universe. This is where the Western university concept comes from. As a matter of fact, the first 125 universities in this country were started to teach and educate Christians how to study the word. Everywhere from Harvard University to Yale to Princeton and so on and so forth. This is the legacy that this man has had. Prior to Jesus, there were no hospitals. People just got sick and you just said, okay, you got sick. If they had people that had money to get somebody to help them, they would. If they didn't have money, that was a wrap for them. But then Christians, when the plague started in ancient Rome, they had higher uh, success and survival rates than anybody else because while everybody was fleeing and getting away from these contagious diseases, the Christians was like, well, wait, we're going to suffer with you and we're going to die with you. And so as a result of that, hospitals start to emerge to people because Jesus said to take care of the sick and to heal the broken. And that this was the, the model and the message that he gave the disciples. The church exists because Jesus said, I want to be in relationship and fellowship with you. I am now the wall that was between Jew and Gentile. I've now torn up. And now that there's community and communion with the holy living God who had revealed himself to the Jewish people, but now is accessible to all people. Get what I'm saying. Prior to Jesus, there was no such thing as a religion that people from different ethnic groups could be a part of. Religions were like, Sports teams, it was like, yo, I'm a Giants fan because I live in New York, and so I worship Eli Manning. <laughs> that would be a pretty sad God to worship, but that's... <laughs> but that's how it was, and then all of a sudden it changes, and again, we live in the reality of the wake of who Jesus is, and then we don't even give him credit for what he did. But this stuff didn't even exist. Even today, if you were to look at every other, even the, the, the pantheism, uh, other forms of, like Islam, it was started in the Middle East. Where, where is it strongest? In the Middle East. Hinduism, it started in India. Where is it strongest? India. Buddhism, Asia, same thing. Atheism, Europe, same thing. Christianity is the only place that has moved its center from where it started in the Middle East, went down to Africa, went up to Europe, and now is going strong in Asia and Europe. Why? Because Jesus Christ is God over all. Not bound by a location. So, but that's not all, big picture. But now let's hone it down to the small. Because in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. 
And I want to spend time here because I don't want it to get it twisted. This is not a, a triumphalism in which I am proudly bo- boasting my chest out about how great Christians are and how sorry and terrible everybody else is. In fact, Christianity teaches the exact opposite. Jesus doesn't teach that we're better than everybody else. And this is the main reason why this idea of exclusive truth is so offensive to people. Because, and oftentimes, it's Christians' own fault. We posture ourselves in such a way that we say, well, yeah, I'm better than you. It's kind of like my squad is better than your squad, so get on to Team Jesus. But that's exactly the opposite of what it's saying here. Look at what it says. It says, by grace, the gift of God, you've been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. If you read further up in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, look, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead in our iniquities. We were walking according to the pattern of this world, completely controlled by the prince of the power of darkness, Satan. And that was our fate until Jesus intervened and rescued and plucked us up out of our situation. That is why there's change. Not because we're better than, in fact, fact, so I will readily concede to you that I have met atheists who are more moral than me. I have met Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims who are better people than I am, who consistently live out what they teach on a regular basis better than me. That doesn't mean that I'm, I'm not coming from a sense of moral superiority. That's not the issue, but the problem is that none of us are good enough to reach to God. It doesn't matter how many good works you do, how many five pillars you do, how many good karmic acts you do, that none of us can reach the goodness of Almighty God in our own strength. And so Jesus did something about it in dying for our sins and resurrecting. That's what is the basis for these things. So the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the basis for salvation and Christianity, not our own moral goodness. Now, our own moral goodness should result, should be the fruit of our faith, but it is not the cause. Christianity is the only worldview that is logically consistent, empirically verifiable, and experientially relevant. And that is because Jesus Christ is God's solution to the brokenness in and around us. This is not something man came up with. Well, how do we respond to these truths? There's three things. Well, the first is truth relative. What we've seen and discovered, truth is exclusive and absolute. So seek it. The reality is the reason why in modern society we have chosen to reject the idea of absolute truth has less to do with a philosophical disposition and more to do with the fact that if there is no absolute truth, I can live however I want. That's really the, the, that's the game changer right there for us. I don't have to change the way I live if truth is relative. But it brings about it, its own it collapses on itself. Because if truth is relative, then how can that statement be absolutely true? Second, do our religions teach the same thing? Well, we've already seen they are fundamentally different. We all have a worldview. So base yours on who made the world. Just because every worldview exists and you can create your own if you want to doesn't mean that it's accurate but why not look at the one who actually made the world? And then lastly, who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ proclaimed and demonstrated himself to be the one and only savior of the world. So follow him. 
So follow him. He said, I am. And the Jews picked up stones to stone him, the Jewish leaders, in John chapter 8. And, that, and they picked up stones to stone him because they understood and immediately knew that he was claiming to be Yahweh because that was what he revealed when uh, Yahweh did God in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses said, well, who should I say send me? Who should I tell them send me? And What's your name? And God, through the burning bush, said, tell them I am sent you. And so when Jesus is explaining to them that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they said, wait a minute, what do you mean Abraham rejoiced today? Abraham was born long ago, thousands of years ago, and you're not even 50 years old. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him because they knew exactly what he was saying. But here's the reality. You need healing? He's the great physician. You hungry for truth? He's the bread of life. You need guidance? He's a wonderful counselor. You need education, he is the great teacher's teacher. You need leadership, he says, come follow me. You need direction, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You need forgiveness, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But if you need protection, he's also the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the conquering king. He's not just a problem. It's not just a solution, he's the savior, not just individually either. You need justice, he is the just judge. You need leadership, he is the righteous king. You need community. He's given us his body, the church, and if you need a mission, he's called us to go and change the world. That is who Jesus is, and that is why we ought to follow him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to hear from you. We live in a world in which there's so much noise and competing ideas about what is true and even if you can find truth. And Lord, um, we just ask that you would speak to our hearts right now. Help us to embrace the fact that you have made us and not we ourselves that you've given us purpose and meaning, that you've given us statutes to live by and we fall short of those, but yet you've given us a savior to rescue us from our sins and that it is appointed once for man to die and then the judgment, but you've given us the grace. And we thank you that the end of the story wasn't just at your crucifixion and it wasn't even at your resurrection but we see the end of the story where you forever are living in your resurrected body, forever with the holes in your nail printed hands, forever with the scar on your side and forever being that savior that invites us and bids us to come. And this is why we worship you. This is why we give you glory. And this is why we come to you. And we ask that wherever those doubts or wherever those just unbelief is in our hearts that you would just move us closer to the reality of who you are. We thank you and we praise you and we lift your name up because we need you. We need you as our Savior and as our Lord. We give you glory and praise in Christ's name. 
We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.